Hi, church family. Uh, good, to, good to sit down with you again. Um, construction's going really, really well. We're, we're seeing the light at the end of the tunnel. I think, uh, again, the teams have done a great job. Construction workers have done a great job. Uh, it's looking really, really good. And I think you're going to be really pleased and really happy by uh, their work and their efforts. Um, so glad that we can meet this way again. Uh, let's pray and we will uh, we'll talk about God's Word. Father, thank you that uh, we have total access to you, not through our own works, our own efforts, but we have access to you because we have been forgiven and we've been covered by the blood of Jesus. And he is our representative. And so how you love him, you love us. How you treat him, you treat us. How you hear him, you hear us. And Father, we can't begin to thank you enough for that. Father, as we talk about prayer, I pray that you help us to become a church filled with prayer warriors. Father, may this message bring comfort and direction and clarity where there might be confusion. And again, Father, may we become a church filled with prayer warriors. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Okay, we are going to be in Mark chapter 11, and we're going to start in verse 20. We're going to start in verse 20. Big number 11, little number 20. Big numbers are the chapters, little numbers are the verses. It's a way to break up and help us understand the flow of, of Scripture and help us be able to track down different thoughts, these verses and chapters. That's kind of what they're there for. Uh, so Mark chapter 11, verse 20. Uh, was where we'll be in a moment. Uh, Christian, there is nothing more valuable in your life than God listening to your prayers. You know, it might be one of those things that grew up in the church, it might be a little bit of christian easy, you know, that christian ease language that we all tend to speak if we've grown up in the church, where we just know that prayer is a thing and it's something that we do, but we, we do it so often or maybe we hear about it so much that we forget the incredible nature of what prayer really is. That it's the creator of the universe who holds everything in his hand, who can do all things, who is all good, all knowing, all wise, and prayer is that being listening to our petitions, listening to what we have to say. Isn't that amazing? I mean, how valuable would it be for you to have the ear of the President of the United States? And for Him to be all wise. And for Him to love you enough that He hears you and He wants to give you the desires of your heart. How valuable would that be? How valuable would that be? Companies and, and wealthy individuals, billionaires, would love to have that kind of access to the President of the United States. But we, through our faith in Christ, through, through Jesus, we have that kind of access to somebody immensely more powerful and more important than the President of the United States. Isn't that amazing? What grace! And not only do we have God's ear, not only does He hear us, but He loves us. And He loves to give us what we ask for. 
And he loves to say no to what we ask for if it protects us and helps us flourish. How valuable is that? And so, since it is true that we have nothing more valuable in this life than through Christ having that kind of access to God, since there is nothing more valuable than that, there is also nothing more valuable. There might be things that are as valuable, but there's nothing more valuable than God teaching us how to effectively pray so that things change in our lives. And that's what we have today in this passage. We have Jesus, second person of the Trinity, God in flesh, creator and sustainer of all things. We have Jesus, our representative. We have Jesus, our example, for how to have a a good, godly, flourishing relationship with God the Father. We see Jesus teaching us how to have an effective, powerful, and what we're going to find out, mountain-moving prayer life. How valuable is that? And now, we need, to, uh, we need to be careful, because this passage is one of the most confused, abused, and misused passages in all of Scripture. We must be very careful with the Word of God. And so, with that in mind, we're going to explore what Jesus says makes for effective mountain-moving prayer. Let's read together. If you remember last week, the last passages that we've, we've talked about uh, was Jesus cleansing the temple. Talked about he, he cursed a fig tree. He, he cursed a fig tree, and they're walking back past, and Peter sees it. You'll remember this if you are with us last week. He, Peter sees it, and he cries out, and this is the passage that, that follows. It goes like this, Matthew chapter, or Mark chapter 11, verse 20. As they passed by in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered away to its roots. Totally destroyed. That's what that means. And Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, talking to Jesus, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed has withered. Wow. They've seen all ki- Jesus do all kinds of miracles. And this Jesus' power is so impressive that it never ceases to amaze. And this is a different thing. We've seen, we've seen Jesus have constructive and life-giving miracles. Brought people back from the dead, healed the sick, all those kind of miracles. This is different. We've seen destructive miracle. So it sticks in Peter's mind. Wow, Jesus, look what happened. And then Jesus Jesus follows that up. Verse 22, Jesus, and Jesus answered them. Have faith in God. Truly I say to you, Whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. Therefore, I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it and it will be yours. Wow. And whenever you stand praying, forgive if you have anything against anyone so that your Father also, who is in heaven, may forgive your trespasses. Okay, just a few verses packed with something of immeasurable value to the people of God. So, 
What, does it, what is effective prayer? What does that look like? So, first thing, Jesus says that effective prayer removes mountains. What does he mean by that? Well, there are different layers to what Jesus is talking about, this illustration. Now, as they're walking from Bethany to Jerusalem, they're in a mountainous region, and there's a few mountains that Jesus could be literally talking about, and is probably using as uh, an illustration. could be the Mount of Olives. The Mount of Olives. He could say, if, he, could, he could be saying it this way, Have faith in God. Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, and maybe he's using the Mount of Olives as an example, perhaps... He's continuing his lesson on the temple, where we saw last week that Jesus abolishes the temple, that He is the new temple, that God's presence is now in us. We don't have to go to the temple for God's presence. And so maybe he's motioning for the temple mount, the mountain that the temple is built on. And he says, whoever would ask for this mountain to be cast in the sea, this mountain to be taken up and thrown into the sea. Maybe that's what Jesus is talking about. There's a lot going on there, right? That, that maybe we, we have now, we're in, in a new covenant. We're in a new relationship with God through Christ. No longer, the, t- the temple is no longer needed. All the things that the temple was and all the blessings that come from the temple are now found in Jesus. And it's even better. And so maybe there's this idea that whoever leaves the temple behind and it's going to be destroyed and whoever turns away from the temple to Christ, these things, maybe there's some of that going on in there as well. That you'll be okay turning from the temple to Christ. We're here. Maybe that's something that's going on there. Maybe there's a, a, a spiritual bent that Jesus is talking about. And maybe it's eschatological. What does that word mean? That's the second coming. It's end times. Eschatological. And maybe there's some of that going on. Because we know in, in Zechariah 14, there's this verse that talks about the end times. He says this, On that day, His feet, the Messiah, God in flesh, His feet shall stand on the Mount of Olives that lies before Jerusalem on the east. And the Mount of Olives, that mountain, shall split in two. Now maybe there's that eschatological bent. And maybe there's all three of these levels that Jesus wants us to think about. So there's a lot going on here. But what we shouldn't do, we shouldn't cast off the practical understanding of what's going on here. That there are Mountains in our lives that effective prayer will remove. Wow. Do we really believe that? Do we really believe that? There are mountains in your life that seem impenetrable, indestructible, immovable. Think about some of those right now. What are those for you? Typically when we think about mountains, we're going to think about some type of suffering. Maybe your mountain is cancer. Maybe your mountain is poverty. Maybe your mountain is loneliness or depression. This suffering seems huge and unstoppable and immovable. What kind of mountains in your life are you dealing with? What kind of suffering in your life seems like a mountain? And so, boy, I want an effective prayer life that can move mountains in my life. 
I want an effective prayer life that can move mountains in the life of my church family, that can move mountains in the life of my children and my friends, my neighbors. Don't you? Boy, is there anything more valuable than that? I don't think so. And so, what is effective prayer that moves mountains? Well, first, before we continue, we need to ask ourselves this question. What does Jesus mean by whatever? Mountain-moving prayer first defines whatever. You see how Jesus says it? He says, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it, and it will be yours. Wow, what does Jesus mean by that? We need to define that. What does he mean by whatever? Now, does he mean whatever I want? Does it mean this is just a blank check? Now, this is where we get into that territory we talked about at the very beginning, that this passage has been misused and abused all over Christianity. It's been misused and abused by people claiming to be Christians, by leaders claiming to be pastors and be leaders, be teachers. These are churches and, and quote-unquote pastors and church leaders that are in the name it and claim it movement. Let's say... We have some kind of magical powers as Christians that when we speak something, it will come into existence. And they'll use passages like this. It's like Jesus says whatever, and so whatever comes out of your mouth, Jesus will do for you. It's some kind of contract that we've got him under. That he is somehow in our debt. That whatever I say will come to pass. Speak it out loud, and your faith has magical powers, and it will come true. Claim, they'll say things like, claim that new car, new house, new spouse, new job. Jesus says whatever. So whatever you want, he will give you. Name it and claim it also goes hand in hand with the prosperity gospel. If you've worshipped with us uh, for a while, we've talked about this often because this is so prevalent. Prosperity Gospel says that Jesus' task is to make us healthy and wealthy and comfortable in this life now. And that's always what Jesus wants for you. That's what the Prosperity Gospel says. And so what's stopping you is that in the Prosperity Gospel, what's stopping you from getting these things that you want, from being fabulously wealthy, what's stopping you is your lack of faith. Or you're not praying the right prayers. Because Jesus says, they'll claim wrongly that Jesus says right here, whatever you want is yours. If you pray correctly. And what they'll also say, you want to know who's a prosperity gospel preacher, a prosperity gospel church? They'll follow it up by saying, if you want that, you need to sow your seed of faith by sending me a hundred dollars. I'll show your faith. That'll get this thing kick-started. They might say it differently. They might say other things. But the idea is you help me become wealthy and then you'll become wealthy yourself. I don't think there's a more destructive false gospel than a prosperity gospel. And what, in this false religion... 
and this confused understanding of who Jesus is and what prayer is and who God is. God is more our divine butler in the sky, there to supply all of our needs, give us comfort, give us whatever we want. We snap our fingers and He comes. He is under our control. Or perhaps He is the divine slot machine in the sky. If I get my coin, and my coin is the right words to say, or the right attitude to have, or just the right amount of so-called faith, and I put the right coin in the slot machine, and I pull the arm, the divine arm of God, and it'll spit out, and if I do it just right, I will get fabulously wealthy, or I'll get everything that I want. This is not the God of Christianity. This is the God of paganism. I need to dance a certain way. I need to whip myself a certain way, and maybe I'll have better crops this season. Not the God of Christianity. And so we must be very careful with the Word of God. Prosperity gospel is, just going, is a burden on people's souls that they cannot bear. It is a false gospel that puts people under pressure. It puts people under self-righteousness to pursue a, a stronger stronger faith that will earn things from God. We don't earn things from God. Christ earned everything for us. He has fully satisfied God. We have everything. We have access to everything that, that we could ever have in God through Christ Jesus. We need to define whatever. So what does Jesus mean by whatever? There are parameters for this whatever. There's guardrails for this whatever. What does he mean here? When, well, first of all, when we use whatever, we use it in a way that doesn't mean everything under the sun, everything in the universe. When you use it, more likely, you have parameters on your whatever. When I ask my wife, when, when my wife asks me, rather, what I want for dinner, and I say, whatever, She's not going to bring me a shoe on a plate. Well, I hope she doesn't. She's a good cook, though. If the shoe's on, I might eat it. It might taste delicious. Who knows? She's that good of a cook. But that's not what she's going to do. Because she knows that my whatever has parameters. If she brought me a shoe on a plate, I would think that she's making some joke. Or she's gone crazy. Because there's parameters on my whatever. This is the common language that we use. Whenever you take your kid to Walmart and say they can buy whatever... Whatever they want. You can buy whatever you want. She's not going to bring you, the maintenance man, up to the checkout and try to buy the maintenance man. And if she does, you'll laugh and say, well, this child doesn't understand what I meant. In common language, whenever we use whatever, we know that there are parameters. And that is how Jesus is using it here. We know intrinsically, just our common understanding of the universe, that when we say whatever, it doesn't mean everything. For instance, we know that Jesus doesn't mean whatever. I cannot pray to God the Father in faith and all these other things. I cannot have an effective prayer asking for God to cease to exist. God cannot cease to exist. Since He exists, He exists necessarily. He cannot cease to exist. That's a prayer that will not happen. That's not in the whatever. It's impossible. We know from our innate understanding of the law of God that I cannot pray to God to make it okay and righteous for me 
to commit adultery or to commit murder. That's not in the whatever. And I think we can all get on board with these things, right? They're just obvious. And from experience, we know that whatever does not mean anything under the sun, anything under in the universe. And so it's just how we use whatever that we set a parameter for what Jesus is saying. I think we can all get on board for that. And even going beyond that, what does he mean by whatever? We have scriptural examples of people who pray, godly, faith-filled individuals that God is working through, performing miraculous things, and yet they pray and do not receive what they ask for. So we know in Scripture this does not always happen. Apostle Paul is a great example. Paul asked the Father to remove a thorn in his flesh, some type of bodily suffering that was devastating to him, that was, that was just something that he bore every single day. He prayed and prayed and prayed that God would remove it. And God did not remove it. In fact, Paul's message from God was this, No, my strength is made perfect in weakness. There was a greater purpose for, for Paul's suffering, for Paul's mountain. But Paul prayed a whatever prayer, but that he did not get what he wanted. And so whatever has scriptural parameters. In fact, maybe somebody will make the maybe somebody will say, well, maybe Paul was having a bad faith week when he prayed that prayer those times. And maybe he just didn't quite have the uh, the equation right. Maybe he was lacking prayer. Maybe he wasn't forgiving someone. Maybe, or lacking, lacking faith. Maybe he wasn't forgiving someone in the right way. Maybe he was lacking something. Well, how about this one? Jesus, perfect in every single way, filled to the brim and overflowing with faith and forgiveness. The th other requirements of effective prayer that we're going to see in a moment. Jesus had them all. And in the garden, he prays to the Father, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. Remove the cup of your wrath that I'm going to drink for the faithful. If there's another way, please remove it. Please don't, please remove it. You can do all things. If there's another way, I want to do that way. But then he says, yet not what I will, but what you will. So even Jesus prays for another way and does not receive what he asked for. Jesus says, but not my will, yours be done. So whatever has parameters. And so what kind of whatever does Scripture teach? What, is, what are some of the parameters that Jesus is talking about? Let's define his whatever. Well, Scripture says, whatever... When it falls in whatever, whatever prayer falls in that whatever category, whatever you ask for in prayer, it'll be yours. Whatever falls in there is whatever will bring glory to the Father. Our effective prayer must bring glory to the Father. In your prayer life, is there a gravitational pull for all your prayers that is moving towards the glory of God? Are all your prayers sprinkled with the desire to glorify God? John 14 says this. This is Jesus. He says, Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. 
Whatever you ask, I will do. There's another whatever, right? Whatever. What's the parameters? Whatever you ask, I will do so that the Father will be glorified. What we ask for to be an effective prayer needs to glorify the Father. That brings effective prayer. So we're praying for things that will glorify the Father. Meaning, glorifying the Father, remember, means pulling away the curtain so that the world will see how valuable God is. Does my prayer life, am I, am I praying for something that will glorify God? If so, it fits into that whatever. Second thing, effective prayer means whatever is not motivated by my sinful passions. When I'm praying for these things, am I praying from being motivated by greed? Prosperity gospel, right? Name it and claim it. I'm going to claim that nice new Mercedes Benz. I'm going to claim it. That's mine in Christ. What's motivating that? <laughs> I must assume, for me, in my heart, I know for me, to pray that prayer would come from a greedy place. Passion for things and stuff and, and for people to see me driving around in this nice car, that comes from a place of, of greed. Effective prayer is not motivated by lust or pride or comfort or fear. And so when I'm praying, if I want to have effective mountain-moving prayer, I need to examine my heart and ask, am I praying from worldly, fleshly passions and desires? Is that my motivation? And this is tricky, isn't it? Because we, we, sometimes there are things that are hidden in our hearts that we can't quite see. We know this to be true, that effective prayer is whatever is not motivated by sinful passions. We know this to be true because James 4.3 says it. He says this, You ask, ask the Father, and do not receive. You're not getting your prayers answered. You do not have effective prayer. In this case, because, he says, you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. So Jesus' whatever does not mean we can ask for things out of lust or greed or fear or any other worldly passion and expect God to give it to us. That's not what he's saying. Because Scripture, we use Scripture to interpret Scripture, and we see Jesus is not saying that. The third thing. Effective prayer is whatever is prayed in God's will. This is the biggie, isn't it? Is your spirit prayer, does your prayer fit into the scope of what God wants for your life and for the world? My will is not the primary mover in my prayer life. It's because I want that Mercedes Benz. I want that my will does not knock God's will off the throne. First John 5, 14 through 15 says this, and this is the confidence that we have toward Him. Aren't you glad you can have confidence toward God? This is the confidence that we have toward Him, that if we ask anything according to His will, He hears us. And if we know that He hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the requests that we have asked of Him. Isn't that amazing? We know this is the confidence we have toward Him. If we ask anything according to His will, He hears us. According to His will, He hears us. And if He hears us, we know that we will have the requests that we have asked of Him. If it's in the will of God. 
And so the will of God, whatever's in the will of God, makes for effective prayer. That's one of the boundaries for effective prayer. Part of the equation, whatever is in God's will. And so we might be tempted to say, well, does that mean that prayer isn't really effective because God's going to do what God wants to do anyway and so I don't have to pray? No, far from it. Far from it. In fact, James tells us there are things that he says you do not have because you do not ask. So God is, God's will is just not, a, not just a bulldozer that does everything. He's just going to do what He's going to do, and so we don't need to pray. No, far from it. There are things that God would love to give us, but we do not ask for. So just because it has to fit into God's will does not mean that there are things that we don't have because we don't ask. Isn't that amazing? So there are prayers that God would love to say yes to, but I don't ask for. Prayers that meet all the parameters, that, that, are, that will bring God glory, that are not motivated by my sinful passions, and that is in our will, or His will, but we do not ask for them. He doesn't say yes to a prayer that hasn't been asked. And so, think through your life. What would glorify God? What is motivated not by sinful passions that we could ask for that would bless our life, but we just haven't asked our Father for? My favorite example, how might this work out? And of course, any kind of analogy that we make toward God and us try to make an illustration is going to fall short, so don't read too much into this, but this is my favorite example, and you've heard this before. If my kid is thirsty in the middle of the night, I love them. And I would love to give them a glass of water. Now, this is where God and I are different. I'll probably be grumpy at 2 a.m. God's never grumpy. But I would love to fulfill, uh, fulfill them in that way. I'd love to serve them in that way. I would love to wake up and give them a glass of water. However, I will not give them a glass of water at 2 a.m. if they don't ask for it. I would love it if they asked for it. In a similar way, again, there are requests God would love to fulfill, but we just don't ask. We just don't ask. And again, the will of God is in that whatever. That whatever we ask for must fit into whatever is in God's will. And we see this clearly, most clearly perhaps. Mark 14, 36 will be there in, in a couple months. Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. Even Jesus submitted himself to the Father's will. Isn't that something? Isn't that something? In his human nature, he submitted himself to the will of the Father. He shows us that example. So, effective prayer, mountain-moving prayer, defines whatever. Jesus will give us whatever we ask for, and the whatever we ask for falls into these parameters. What will, whatever glorifies God, whatever prayers will glorify God. Whatever prayers are not done to satisfy our passions, our worldly passions, our lusts and greed and things like that. And He loves to fulfill whatever we ask for. He will fulfill whatever prayer we ask for if it is in the will of God. So, what are some of these other what are these other parameters? That's the big one. Let's define that. That's the big one. But what's the other? What's, what else is needed for effective prayer that Jesus teaches? Well, mountain-moving prayer must be a display of trust. 
must be a display of trust. He says right off the bat, Peter's amazed that this happened. Wow, you said it and destruction came. Holy cow, that's amazing, Jesus. And Jesus' first instance as he teaches about prayer to respond to Peter is this, have faith in God. And so now what does Jesus mean by faith? Right? Let's define that. What is faith? What does Jesus mean by faith? I think we have a great description on how Paul, in the book of Romans, describes Abraham's faith when God promised that he would have a son in his old age. Remember this story? Remember a super old guy? Super old guy. His wife, super old gal. And God promised that they would have a son. That'd be a hard thing to trust God for, right? That'd be, is this really going to happen? And so Paul defines his faith. He says this. This is Romans chapter 4, verse 19. He says, He did not weaken in faith... When he considered his own body, which was as good as dead, since he was about a hundred years old, or when he had considered the barrenness, barrenness of Sarah's womb, no unbelief made him no unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God. But he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. That is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. So what did Abraham do? How did Abraham display his faith? I love how Paul said, isn't it funny how Paul goes, he was as good as dead. That guy was old. But he had faith, meaning he trusted in God's character, that God's good, in God's goodness, that he would fulfill what he promises. And secondly, he trusted in God's power to deliver on his promises. That's what, the faith, that's what faith Abraham displayed. And that's what faith we need to display for effective prayer. That we trust in God's goodness and His character. That we trust in His power to make His promises come true. So, since that is an ingredient, a necessary ingredient in effective prayer, a trusting in God, that He is good, no matter what will happen, that He is good, and trusting in His power, since that is true, what will stop effective prayer then? It says, have faith in God. Do not doubt in your heart. And so doubt what? Well, doubt, if we're praying and doubting that it's in God's will, I doubt that God wants this to happen, that's probably not going to make for an effective prayer. If we don't believe that it's in God's will, because we already saw it must fit into God's will, maybe it's doubting that. Doubting the goodness of God? We pray for these things, and like, well, God might not do it because He's not... He's not good. He won't fulfill his promises. Having a doubt about God's character? Having a doubt about the power of God? God isn't strong enough to do this? So maybe doubting those, doubting those things removes faith in who God is? And so now the question might be, well, we've got to have faith in the character and power of God. Now the question might be, what if I don't have enough faith? That's what some of these false teachers will say. You just got to have more faith. You got to have more faith. Got to work harder. You're not, I know these prosperity preachers might say, I know I told you if you'd send me $1,000 that you'd get that new car and you haven't got that new car yet. But you just, the, the, the problem isn't in my theology that's from the devil. The problem is you just don't have enough faith. That's what they might, that's what they say often. You just don't have enough faith. It's your fault. What if I don't have enough faith? What if I don't believe hard enough? Is that what's stopping me from getting what I ask for in prayer? I trust God in His goodness. I trust God 
that he fulfills his promises. He's a power to do that. I trust those things, but maybe I just don't trust him enough. The effectiveness of prayer is not grounded in your strength. It's not grounded in how strong your faith is or how, what a superstar Christian you are. That's not what grounds effective prayer. Effective prayer is grounded not in your faith, but in where you put your faith. Faith is necessary for effective prayer. But the effectiveness is not about something in you that's so spectacular. It's not in the strength or righteousness of your faith that makes fair prayer effective. It's in the object of your faith. And so listen, I would like to believe that my faith is stronger than my, my four-year-old, my six-year-old daughters. But that doesn't mean that God won't be effective in their prayers. In fact, we know that that's true. Let me show you how we know that that's true. Jesus says this, For truly, I say to you, if you have faith like a grain of a mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it will move, and nothing will be impossible for you. So what does Jesus emphasize there? Mustard seed was the smallest seed that they knew about. So what's Jesus saying? That's not about the strength of your faith, like you are some grand Christian woman or Christian man, and so now God is going to listen when you, when you finally are stronger in your faith. No, he says, even if you have faith that's this big, you can have an effective prayer life that moves mountains. Why? Because it's not about how good you are. It's not about how good your faith is. It's about where you put your trust. It's about putting our trust in God who can do anything in His gracious and merciful nature. We can never have the, enough faith, the faith that we need in ourselves. Our faith is never going to be perfect. In fact, God never tells us in His Word, trust yourself. Trust your, your own Christianity. Trust your own ability to be faithful. Trust your own ability to be righteous. Trust, trust, trust these things for you. He never says trust. Who does he say trust? Trust God. Trust Christ. Isn't that freeing? Isn't that freeing? That effective prayer life is not reserved for superstar Christians. Effective prayer life can be the the baby, baby, baby Christian who was just saved yesterday and still trying to figure out, doesn't even have John 3.16 memorized, but they have a tiny, teeny, tiny bit of faith in Christ. And that faith can move mountains. Why? Because that faith is trusting in the God who created the mountains. Believer, no matter the amount of faith that you believe that you have, no matter if you think you're a superstar Christian or not, you have faith for effective prayer. Isn't that good news? That's great news. God is not waiting for your faith to be strong enough for Him to move in goodness through your prayers. He's not waiting for that. He's ready for that. Faith of a mustard seed. Faith of a mustard seed. Mountain moving faith defines Jesus is whatever. Mountain-moving faith displays, mountain-moving prayer displays faith in the character and power of God. And finally, 
Jesus says mountain-moving prayer is shaped by the gospel. He says, and, whatever, and whenever you stand praying, forgive. If you have anything against anyone, so that your Father also who is in heaven may forgive your trespasses. We already said faith in God is necessary for effective prayer. And to have saving faith in God is to believe the gospel. And the gospel says that we have been forgiven of treason, of extreme wickedness that we can't even comprehend now in our own hearts. But God has forgiven us through the blood of Jesus. And so someone who is standing in the temple, hands raised, this is how you would pray, as you stand praying, trying to have effective prayer life to move mountains. If you're standing and doing that and you have in your heart bitterness, hatred, an unforgiving heart towards someone else, you will not have effective prayer. Why? Because the unforgiving Christian heart should not expect to have an effective prayer life because that unforgiving Christian heart has forgotten why we can pray to God in the first place. We have access to God because we have been forgiven of our great sinfulness through the blood of Jesus. And we have been forgiven of greater sins than anyone could ever sin against us. Christian, no one has ever offended me or offended you greater than our, the greater than our tiniest sin that we've made against God. And we have been forgiven. So a person who prays to the Father through the blood of Jesus while refusing to forgive others is not praying in faith. Their prayers are not shaped by the gospel. You might hear, do you hear the hammering? I'm on the third floor trying to get away from it. I don't know where that's coming from. They're getting work done. They're getting work done. So we must forgive because that shows that we have been shaped by the gospel when we can forgive others, that we know how much we have been forgiven. And so that makes for effective prayer. And fi so finally, so let, let's ask this. Where are we? So after all this, where are we? So, if we want to have a mountain-moving, effective prayer life, mountain-moving prayer is prayer wrapped in the gospel, dripping with trust in the character and power of God, heated for the glory of God, clear of sinful desires, and under the will of God. And this prayer will move mountains. The final question is this. How do I live when, to the best of my understanding, I have prayed shaped by the gospel, I have prayed with the correct motivations, I have prayed for this to be the will of God, I have prayed in faith, trusting, I know God can do it. To the best of my ability, I've, I've, done, I've made these prayers, I think, fit what Jesus says is effective prayer. What, how do I live when the mountains that I prayed to be removed are still there? How do I live after I've prayed in this way and the mountains are God's will? You know, driving, as a kid, we'd make a couple trips to Colorado. I lived on the Missouri side, and so we'd drive over Kansas. And I can remember, you'd hit a point where you started to see the Rocky Mountains. 
They're just little bitty, and they just, oh, there they are. You could start to see them. And you'd see, you'd see them, and they'd grow and grow and grow. But sometimes, sometimes there'd be clouds over near the Rocky Mountains. It might be clear where I'm driving, but it'd be clouds over there, and you couldn't distinguish the mountains from the clouds. My perspective would not let me distinguish what are mountains or what are clouds. We can't, I couldn't trust my eyes until we got right up to the mountains. I couldn't distinguish what was mountain and what was cloud. In the same way, when we pray for mountains to be removed, we can't always trust our eyes. Sometimes, they are mountains that God will remove. Sometimes what we see in the distance is cancer or poverty or loneliness or a broken marriage. Sometimes we pray in this way and it is effective and God removes those mountains. Praise God. But sometimes He doesn't. And when He says no, what we will discover is that those were not really mountains at all. They felt like it. We suffered. But what we will discover is that those weren't really mountains at all. The ones that God says no to and leaves in our life, we will discover that they were not truly mountains, but what they were were piles and piles and piles of heavenly treasure that we will receive for our suffering in this life when we enter into the next. That goodness. So, brother or sister, those mountains that are not removed are not truly mountains at all, but are storing up for us heavenly blessings and gifts that in 10,000 years we will be thankful for. When God leaves what looks like mountains in our lives, they are, they, what they truly are are piles of blessings that He is storing up for us. How do we know this to be true? Romans 8:28 All things work together for the good of those who love God. So, brothers and sisters, friends and neighbors, Christian brothers and sisters, let us have effective prayer lives. Let us not let us define whatever so that we not claim that we're not claiming anything false about God. We're not, let us pray effective prayer lives defining whatever so that we do not show the world that God is some butler that He is not. Let us pray effective prayers. Let us be prayer warriors knowing that our prayers can change things. Let us pray for our unbelieving friends and neighbors that God will open their hearts. Let us pray for the suffering of one another and suffering in our own lives. Let's pray for blessings for our family and for our, for our friends and for our neighbors and for our church. Let's pray for those things, knowing that God loves to give us what we ask for, but also knowing when He says no, that is ultimately for our good. A non-believer, your prayers are not effective because they're not prayed through the blood of Jesus. So, let us ask you, here's one prayer that you can pray that will be effective. And it is a prayer of repentance and faith. Your prayer today, non-believer, needs to be this. God, I am a sinner. I have been a rebel against you. I have a wicked heart. And you need to say, God, give me the faith and the power to turn and repent from my sinfulness and follow Jesus. 
That is a prayer that through the Holy Spirit, God the Holy Spirit, will be effective for you. Non-believer, pray that prayer. We love you. I hope that this has been a blessing to you. Let me pray for us, and we'll finish up. Father, thank you that you will hear us through the blood of Jesus. Father, may we be a, a church known for being prayer warriors. Father, may we have families that are filled with effective prayer warriors. Father, may we pray seeking your will. May we pray seeking to pray without, with correct motivations. May we pray for things that glorify you. May we pray in faith and may we pray in the gospel. Father, we love you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We'll see you next time.